0: Diaz! Welcome to Daddy Unscripted. Uh, If that doesn't make sense to you, in another episode I kind of made fun of myself for my intros being very blasé. So I told myself that I'm going to learn how to say hello in many languages, which I already knew that one. But anyways, uh, welcome to Daddy Unscripted. I'm your host, Tim Wheaton. I'm the creator of the podcast and the blog, Daddy Unscripted. And today I'm going to be sitting with Michael Coliri, who is a Screenwriter and producer known for such films as uh, Face Off, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, and uh, Firehouse Dog. So that's straight from his IMDb. I'm not making this stuff up. And uh, Michael and I got to sit down and talk about being a dad and for him what that was like as a child with his own father who was in the industry and what it is like for him now uh, with his two daughters and so I hope you really enjoy this episode and get something out of it and learn a lot about a fantastic man, uh, Michael. So let's take it to the episode. All right, we are here today uh, with another episode of Daddy Unscripted. Thank you for joining us. I am here with Michael Coleri. Hello. And uh, Michael, I'll let you... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure,
1: sure. Uh, my name is Michael Caleri. Um, I am a 55-year-old man. Um, I was born and raised in New Jersey, lived in Los Angeles now for 35 years, longer. Um, I am married with two tween-age children, 13 and 11, both girls. And I've been married for, it'll be 15 years this this wow. year this may so um that's sort of my background family wise i guess yeah and i work in the film industry i'm a writer i'm in the tv and movie worlds and i teach also teach screenwriting at ucla from time to time i um, did not know that yeah visiting visiting an instructor there
0: so cool yeah that's where i went to school so. oh okay so let's let's go back to new jersey then okay which i didn't i'm So, to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, Michael's wife is my wife's cousin on her mother's side. Uh, So, Right. First cousins, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, we are cousins-in-law? Cousins, it's either... Is there such a thing?
1: I think it's like cousins once removed or cousins twice removed. I think you kind of get into that.
0: Oh, right, right, right. That sort of thing. But yes,
1: cousins-in-law would be a good, probably more
0: accurate it's easier yeah um so i know michael but i don't know (laughs) michael and so oh believe me you'll know way too much before this is over (laughs) yeah this will be a learning experience (laughs) for me as well uh so new jersey i i do you have siblings
1: yeah i i can give you the whole background the whole domestic background um i was born in montclair new jersey which is about 10 11 miles dead west of manhattan um from our kitchen window you you could see well i watched the twin towers be built from our really from our house yeah I wow. watched them go up you could see them from our house um and right outside our kitchen window 11 miles away was this beautiful tableau of new york on the left was george you could see at night the george washington bridge in the center was the empire state, state building and on the right were the twin towers i mean it's really quite a picturesque place Montclair is a fairly uh well-known town in essex county um which is sort of the center of the soprano universe but montclair was more um it was a very progressive town growing up it was one of the first towns in the country that had voluntary uh uh, desegregation and um busing Hmm. and um which i think had a huge impact positively on on my life um and a lot of artists and kind of industry people live there now. Stephen Colbert lives there now. Oh, okay. Um, you know, uh, Michael Strahan lived there for a long time. So it, it's a nice, really nice town, good public schools, um, very diverse. All, uh, at least when I was growing up, I think it's probably still the case. Um, all social classes, all races, all religions mm-hmm. um, lived in Montclair. It's getting expensive. New Jersey is a, this is a, something you probably don't need to know about, but New Jersey and especially Essex County has insanely high property taxes. And so uh, that area has become a little less affordable for, for working families. But anyway, Hmm. when I was growing up, it really was uh, the baby kind of the tail end of the baby boom generation. There were families in my town in my grade, that seven, eight, nine kids. Um, You don't see that much anymore. And um, you kind of got to know everybody if they were in the public school system because they all ended up in the high school and um, lived there till the seventies. When I was about 16, 17, my dad, who was a TV writer, my dad worked in New York city, like a lot of dads from Montclair. Um, He worked in New York city, but he was in, um, he was in showbiz. He wrote, he wrote captain kangaroo, the baby boom kid show. Wow. 20 years. Yeah. So, uh, and it was a very steady, unlike, most people whose lives are in show business, he actually had a pretty steady gig. I mean, Mm -hmm. he got up and he went, got on the bus and went to Manhattan and came home every night. Um, and so we really were kind of not, didn't live in the fear of most, like as most industry, most showbiz families of like, when's the next pay, next paycheck coming. Anyway. So it was a very stable middle-class upbringing. I have an older brother by three years. Uh, I have two younger sisters, uh, we all live out here, Los Angeles mm. area now. My uh, one sister's married to a TV, very successful TV writer. Uh, my other sister lives in Santa Monica. My brother lives in Studio City, I guess. He works on a TV show. He's a writer also. Wow. TV show uh, for Nickelodeon. And my mom lives in Santa Barbara. My dad passed away, I want to say in 2012. They were married for 56 years. Wow, yeah. Um. And uh, you know, very solid citizens, both my dad and my mom, my mom does a lot of charity work. My dad was very much of that era of you work super work ethic, incredible work ethic, mm-hmm. but uh, loved us to pieces. His fantasy was for all of us to live together in a compound like the Godfather <laughs> on an island somewhere. But beyond that, he was not very social. He was not a talkative, fellow particularly um and uh he was very warm i don't want to make it sound like he was aloof or anything like that we we had a very wonderful close relationship our whole lives uh but you know you had to be it's like the movie um meet the parents. It's like Robert De Niro in that movie. You had to be in the circle of trust. If you got in the circle of trust with my father, then you were in, but the circle was very small. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway, but uh, so yeah, pretty solid. um, Not a lot of chaos in, in my family upbringing or anything like that. I mean, my parents had their uh, issues, um, I guess, like everybody financial concerns at certain points and there's their own family struggles. Um, my dad came from a very dysfunctional Irish Catholic kind of new uh work nah, middle class family who were like one generation out of the coal coal fields okay and uh so they the, his side we don't know a lot about, but there was lots of alcoholism, lots of depression uh family abandonment, suicide uh, there's a lot of dark stuff on that on wow. that side of the family. my mother's side. Both her parents were immigrants from Ireland, came over in the early 20th century, probably about 100 years ago. Uh, he was a la- – my grandfather, Beatty was a laborer in New York, helped dig the Holland Tunnel. Uh, nice. They had big, fam- big Irish family, very much uh, – they were all pretty much all girls. They had, uh, I think, four girls and two boys, I want to say. Is that right? And uh, big, fun, very close family um lots of parties lots of get-togethers lots of closeness and you know fights too lots mm-hmm. of you know very m- emotional uh part of the family unlike my dad's side which who were pretty um you know subdued and low-key and, yeah uh, but my mom's family was what you know like the first hour of the deer hunter i mean that's sort of what all the weddings were like <laughs> awesome uh, <laughs> um um <laughs> And uh, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of my family background.
0: So was your dad's family large and your mom's family large or no? I mean, like sibling wise would. Oh, uh,
1: that's a great question. My mom's family was very large. Like I said, I think she had four sisters and two brothers and, you know, they, they were not well off by any means. My mother slept in the same bed with my sisters, but a very. Proud family, mm-hmm. you know, hardworking, again, very solid citizens, uh, but living in in Brooklyn back mm-hmm. back before, you know, Brooklyn is what it, it is. Is Brooklyn, now. yeah. Uh, my mother to this day, once in a while, will sh- will tell her how much apartments go in and we use. I think I went on Google Earth with her once and showed her her old apartment in Park Place, Brooklyn, oh, gosh. and she couldn't. She just isn't like shaking her head in disgust, right? How much how expensive it all is, um. But my dad actually no. My dad had one sibling. Um, my dad's family we've pretty much decided his whole upbringing was like right out of Eugene O'Neill. He, his mother was a very controlling, dominating mm. uh, person. If you saw the movie Carol, um, if anyone, mm. if
0: we could do a New, little. Yeah.
1: My mother, my grandmother was very <clears throat> reminded me a lot of Kate Blanchett in that movie with her fur and kind of very haughty. Uh, attitude kind of that masked a real sense of um, uh, low self-esteem and need to control and everything like that. And um, so anyway, they, my brother had, my father had one brother and my grandmother um, set about kind of splitting them down the middle. My father was her favorite and could Mm -hmm. do no wrong. And my uncle was the bad kid and could do no right. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that played out in, terrible, gruesome family ways all through their lives. And then my dad had two sons, me among them, and I was my grandmother's favorite, and I could do no wrong, and my brother could do no right. And my Uncle Bill had two sons, Brian and Billy, and one of them was the favorite and could do no wrong. And so anyway, there was, you get the idea, and there was just lots and lots of melodrama, which um, we escaped from uh, when my family moved to California pretty
0: much. I so with that move was that I'm assuming your dad was writing for Captain Kangaroo to the end and yeah, pretty much but, um, the show. Well, my dad
1: was, you know, like my dad had worked on Captain Kangaroo for a long time, 15, 20 years. And he was, he was a little, he was not satisfied particularly. I mean, mm-hmm. he did not have sort of grand ambitions of artistic grant, you know, you know in a big artistic brilliant career and like that, but he was pretty bored of knock knock jokes and ping pong balls, yeah and, yeah, and all that and uh he wanted to come out to California, he wanted to get out of the East Coast. he was born in Montclair, New Jersey, also lived his whole life there pretty much, mm-hmm. he was sick of the family stuff and and uh sick of the weather and all that so you know eventually captain kangaroo started to wind down um they were cutting the budgets they were cutting the schedule they wanted to phase you know they were cutting salaries and all that And right. he just took that as a sign that it was time to move on mm-hmm. he really wanted to get into sitcoms he wanted it felt that he had a had, you know he had real interest in sitcoms and so he i always joke that my dad was the last guy over 40 who to that they let into the sitcom business before they before they changed all the rules who didn't have to work his way up yeah he 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 didn't have to go to harvard lampoon or anything like that but uh my yeah so we moved out i want to say 1977 78 and that was sort of just before the certainly the tv business started to change and become Mm -hmm. a real uh of real interest to young particularly young men Mm -hmm. um it was right before that era when, yeah, guys from the Harvard Lampoon came out and got on the Simpsons, and every, mm-hmm. everyone was sort of twenty-four years old, and so my dad was able to kind of get worked really hard, um, and he was able to get kind of a good run in there for about ten or twelve years before he he retired.
0: Okay, so did he work on something steady during that time, or was he, he just kind of he, tendrils?
1: He he actually a little bit of both. He he um he was able to get a couple freelance back in that day those days you could actually get hired to write freelance mm-hmm. but to do freelance scripts um open assignment scripts for shows so he wrote a mash and he wrote a barney miller um and he worked on a show called aes hudson street which didn't last very long it lasted like one season yeah i
0: definitely didn't hear about that one yeah
1: and um but he he My dad was really, like I say, great work ethic, no nonsense, no trouble, you know. So he was someone who people want to – would like to – that kind of personality people want to work with because they know they're they're reliable. Right.
0: Um,
1: So he was able to uh, kind of – he ended up working on a show called Benson, which was a spinoff of Soap. Yes. And he formed very strong relationships with the creators of that show, Danny Arnold – I'm sorry, Danny Thomas – and Tony, oh, yeah. To, yeah, and Danny Thomas' son, Tony Thomas, is a very successful TV producer and produced Soap and a million other shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they became close, and so uh, Tony kept my dad on Benson for four years and then hired my dad to work on a show called It's a Living, which was one of the first direct-to-syndication TV shows oh. ever made. It had it had been on NBC, I believe, and it had been canceled, uh, but they still own the rights, the, the – thomas and and his partners and so um they set it up with one literally one um sponsor procter and gamble agreed to fund the whole thing i believe it's procter and gamble and they they set it up and it was went direct to you know whatever other networks
0: syndicating it syndicated
1: yeah direct to syndication it was a big financial success and my dad had a piece of the show so he was able to retire oh, that's cool but he worked himself to you know to the kind of his limit he had double, yeah. you know by the time he quit he had to quit i mean he had double pneumonia he oh just, geez he just worked until he dropped yeah but he lived you know he recovered he recovered right um and had a nice long retirement before he died but uh but he was pretty much a husk by the time he got, got mm-hmm. out. it's amazing my dad lived to be i think he was 83 or 84 when he passed on but um he had just I think he had just turned 84. uh you know he smoked for 30 years mm-hmm. he drank he drank tons of diet soda for 30 years he was overweight uh the guy never exercised mm-hmm. he, um ever he was he 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 was like the only guy who in southern California who like never owned a pair of jogging shoes or anything <laughs> like that he just he, he he just wasn't that way yeah and so he just will it was like I said he was he was two generations out of the coal coal mm-hmm. fields, and it was just like bullheaded, just hard minor stock or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which I don't, I didn't have. My brother has it a little bit better than me, but I never, I did not get that
0: yeah. ability at all. So he then, I'm doing math while you're huh? talking. Was born in like 28.
1: Very good, yeah. He was born in 1929. Oh, My 29. I was born in 29. Okay, and I was born in 60. Okay. Um. And so, yeah, he was about thirty years older than me. Okay. Than and he
0: was 30. born in New Jersey. He or? was born in Montclair. Yeah. Okay. He, we
1: were born in the same hospital.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. So your mom was younger than him. My mom was, is younger. Than is him. younger
1: than him. Yeah, by a couple of years.
0: Okay. She just turned eighty-five. Okay. So your parents are basically exactly where my parents. Oh. My dad was born in twenty-nine. Oh wow. And my mom was born in thirty-one. Oh wow. And my dad was one, he was a twin, and he had two other siblings, uh-huh. and they lived during that same time of going through the Depression. Right, right, Um, You know, I used to hear all those crazy stories about all that time during the Depression, and then the, you know, we always loved hearing about the five-cent um, meals that they right. could get, a right, burger take, and a right, soda. At and, the
1: at the uh, Automat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so that's funny that they were, where were basically... they Where were they born and lived? And everything. So my mom was born in um, Ohio, mm-hmm. and she lived in a suburb area of Cleveland called Shaker Heights. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which back then was completely different. And now, because um, my, my last job, I used to have to go to Cleveland all the time. And so once I actually took a drive to Shaker Heights, it's now a... Um, I think it's pretty ghetto. Yeah. Um, right. And... I want to say, I know my mom told me this at one point, but I've also been told at one point that I was part Indian, which apparently is not true. So I don't know if this is real or not. But uh, I want to say that one of the first recorded murders in that area was one of my family line. I don't know how far back. Victim Oh my God. Yeah. So back sometime and recorded would have been, you know, like maybe newspaper wise or whatever, but it was sometime in the 1800s, I guess. Um, I'm sure there was murder in Cleveland long before that. Oh, um, yeah. But so much for the good old days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, anyways, yeah, my dad was born and raised out here in. I. I always get the two confused it was either redondo beach or hermosa beach Mm -hmm. um and so he was out in the coast all his life basically and uh went to occidental Mm -hmm. college up there and was i mean just lived a totally different life he um was one of the original surfers wow who he would always tell me that it was during the time when they would cut a tuna um basically in half or whatever, and lacquer the tuna to the surfboard. And those were the original first, I don't know what they call them now. We used to call them skags. But, you know, the little oh yeah rudders, yeah. basically, right, right. on yeah. the bottom of a mm-hmm. surfboard.
1: That was a tuna.
0: Yeah, before then there was nothing, and they were trying to steer their surfboards without any kind of guide. And then oh, somebody came to the idea of, you know, boats have... Rudders or whatever, something to steer them, so they would stick a tuna on there, <laughs> that and is then insane. eventually somebody yeah. started using whatever kind of material to actually have something right. on there, so uh, that's crazy. I'd never heard that before, yeah,, uh-huh. I don't know i'm I'm hoping that wasn't one of the you're an Indian story <laughs> <it>, is actually <laughs> true no, right Um it makes a good story though, yeah, so. Okay, so you guys move out here in the seventies. Yeah,
1: late seventies. We moved out, uh, the whole family. My brother at that point was in college mm-hmm. in Emerson College in Boston. Okay, uh, I was still in high school. My sisters were starting high school, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went back for my senior year and live with a buddy in Montclair. Oh, really? So I ended up graduating from from my, you know, from Montclair High School.
0: So did you come out here and do like a year or a two summer. years, and then? Oh, yeah. okay.
1: Yeah, we moved out right before, at the oh, end of my junior year. Got it. And then I went back at the end of that summer to okay uh, uh, for the for my senior year.
0: And um, then you came here and. went into college right after that yeah it took a
1: little while i went to i went to school i did not want to come to california i was really against it Mm -hmm. all my friends were back east i mean you know 17 years old it's sort of like your social life is at least mine was pretty much everything and yeah um and so i really and the east coast i was very militant about new jersey as most people who are born there can be yeah um and I just, you know, that was my world. I didn't really, had no interest really in, right. in uh, uprooting myself, uh, although I saw the need for my family to do it. Uh, so anyway, I was a little restless and um, I didn't really want to come out here and start over. So I went to sc- college in Philadelphia for a year. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and quickly realized that I was just being an ass, <laughs> and, um, and California was pretty awesome, and yeah. I should get out of here, get get back out here as quick as I could. So I came back out, and I really I went to school in San Francisco for a year, and then Berkeley for two years. But then it's, I've been back here. I've lived here now for uh, since the early '80s. Yeah, it's
0: really been my only my only home. So you're parents everybody moved here to la yeah. and then your mom eventually has ended up in santa barbara yeah my okay parents,
1: yeah they they uh they lived in Toluca lake mm. which is you know north Hollywoodish. um uh bob hope lived there and you know it was sort of a a, a nice little valley Stanley. town yeah. yeah i was considered that in the 40s and 50s it was a lot of industry families mm-hmm. uh lived landed there i'm Trying to think of some of the more famous ones, but anyway, Bob Hope lived near our in, near our neighborhood. Believe me, we didn't live like Bob Hope, <laughs> but we lived in this, on our street. There was, um, you know, a lot of people had lived there. Like Bella Lugosi had lived there oh, on wow. that street from time to time. I mean, you know, people, especially in our industry, they they, as you know, they kind of come and go, and, right? You know, they're always moving for some reason. So Forrest Tucker lived down the street huh. from F Troop. He lived on the corner um, with his family and. We didn't see him too much, but, and the John Wayne's family is not John. I don't think the Duke lived around the corner, but his, some of his kids did, huh, cool. grown kids did. So anyway, um, so yeah, so we lived there, but then when my dad was working, they bought a place in Santa Barbara for their retirement. Oh, okay, and So they were, you know, once again, something, some gene I didn't get, which was the planning for the future gene. Huh? <laughs> um, and uh, so, but, so they made that happen and then, when well, my dad finally quit, uh, they sold the place and up they went.
0: Okay. So your dad obviously got to see that two of you became writers. Yeah. And got to see that your sister yeah. married a writer. Yeah. And yeah. was that something kind of that you all just kind of fell into basically or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in fact my dad was not for it, I don't think. I mean, oh, really? I think
1: I think he was sort of secretly Pleased in a way, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, I, I he, w- it would have been fine if we had gone off and done anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, he really, and he used to joke like he would shake his head when I, I think when I told him I wanted to be a screenwriter, he was like, you know, his attitude was like, you just haven't been paying attention, <laughs> obviously. Um, okay. But I, I got into it because when I went to college, um, I just I just fell in love with the movies. I just mm-hmm. found I was not very good socially. And I found that in college you could basically spend all day, uh at least in the colleges I went to, you could spend all day watching movies for free in the mm-hmm. student union or some film club uh, or cheap at some revival house. And so I just went to the movies all the time. That's all I did was go to the movies. And of course I and then I took classes that showed movies and I had friends who were this kind of the same. We were all film geeks and we Mm -hmm. just, that's all we did. So, and at that time there was a bit of a, um, there was like a social cultural bulge moving through our society. And, and, um, so when I started college, I wanted, I went to, I was a journalism major Mm -hmm. and that was because of Woodward and Bernstein and all, you know, all the president's men and Watergate and all that. I thought that was really cool. But by the time I got into college, it was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and the movie brats, and it was it was sort of that vibe mm-hmm. uh, that inspired so many people to kind of say, "Hey, can I make a living doing that? Mm-hmm. That looks kind of fun." Um, so by the time I got out of undergraduate, and I had applied to UCLA film school because everyone I, almost everyone I hung out with at college at Berkeley wanted to go to UCLA film school, right. and a lot of them did.
0: A lot of them did. So that was kind of the big – Yeah. This side West Coast film school to go to was UCLA pretty much.
1: Yeah. SC was even at the time – first of all, it was tons more money. Yeah. Um, And I did apply there and I was accepted, but it was so much more money. And and the vibe there was always kind of uh,
0: –
1: it's hard to say. There, there was a real sort of smugness mm-hmm. to the culture there. Mm-hmm. Um and just des- I guess deservedly I mean look who they pumped out of that institution has changed the movie industry forever but right. it wasn't it between that and the money just it wasn't worth it I mm-hmm. just didn't find it as interesting as UCLA mm-hmm. so uh so that's where I that's where I went I I, I worked here for a year but then I in, in a mailroom but then I ended up at UCLA film school
0: so did you do any kind of like going up the ladder kind of thing work with within the industry or did you basically write 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 and finally get something going and take off from there
1: uh well a little bit of both um i i as i say i worked in a mailroom on a game show before i went to film school um and that was interesting interesting experience my first taste of the industry Mm -hmm. uh and then when i was in school I was writing screenplays and obviously trying to learn and figure out how to make a living. I became a scr- freelance script reader, which mm-hmm. is you know kind of an entry level job here in Hollywood, as you right. know.
0: And you, which you, most people who are doing that are writers, pretty much. Yes.
1: Yeah, because yeah, uh, lo- lots of yes, I would say that probably predominantly because um, it's a freelance job. It's sort of like you, you know you pick up work when you can. It's it's a, a low. um commit the commitment is pretty flexible. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you pick up a stack of scripts on a Friday and, and you get paid 50, whatever it was, 30 to $50 each script to provide a coverage, you Mm -hmm. know, a synopsis and some notes and some comments and, and turn it back in on Monday or whatever it was, or over books or something like that. So yeah, yeah, pretty flexible job. just enough social contact that you actually could justify that you're making connections. Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) but you read a lot, I read a lot of bad scripts, but, but helpful. I mean, ultimately it was a really good experience educationally to, yeah. to read tons and tons of those scripts and just uh, learn kind of what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. But So in the meantime I was writing and trying to make a, a go of the writing career. And I, you know, and I was lucky I won an award here or there at UCLA and um, would get an opportunity to write like a cheap movie for, Somebody who had a couple thousand dollars, maybe to spend, and uh, you know, none of those things ever really bore fruit. So it wasn't. It took me a few years to write a spec that I was able, a spec script that I was able to get an agent, and he was able to sell it. But that was the that was a wonderful era for screenwriters because um, there was a lot, just a lot of opportunity for screenwriters. Mm-hmm. And this is the now I want to say early nineties, and okay, there was tons and tons of cash. In Hollywood, the studios were all pretty flush because the because the preceding decade was the dawn and the kind of the uh, development of home video. Mm-hmm. So first VHS tapes and then DVDs, and this was a revenue stream. The studios, it cost the studios almost nothing to put their libraries on this new technology. Right. And so they were just – there was just tons of cash. Yeah. And so consequently, these development departments at the studios were spending tons of cash trying to find their next movies. And so um, so if you didn't sell a spec, which is you know, not the easiest thing in the world to do, but if you didn't sell it, you could still get a, get a job if you had a good writing sample. You could get a job rewriting the person who sold the spec
0: <laughs> right right of something <laughs> you know? else yeah um
1: and uh and there was sort of a more of a kind of uh roll the dice i guess mentality people would buy pitches people would buy, spend a million dollars on a spec they'd mm-hmm. get into bidding wars there was a lot of hype i mean this was the age of shane black and
0: lethal weapon and- right and he kind of he was kind of the he. Was, i mean he was paid the highest right off the bat with the lethal weapon stuff right i mean he broke yeah, I don't that I
1: that I don't know, but but he definitely became and he still is in a way the he he be, he sort of uh he became kind of a iconic type in Hollywood, which is the young smart screenwriter mm-hmm. who comes in with a completely original work that takes ho- that suddenly all the studios want. Right. And so he got, went basically went from complete obscurity to being the most in-demand writer in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, kind of overnight. I mean, he had been in UCLA around that time. He was in the theater department. I, I, I didn't know him when I was there, but, mm-hmm. um, but suddenly that became like a valid career choice, right? Where at 23 years old, and I know I'm friends with Don Mancini, who who created Chucky, uh-huh. and you know Don wrote Chucky. He didn't write it in film school, but he wrote it while he was in film school. Uh-huh. And, you know, suddenly Don Mancini at 23 or 24 years old, he, obviously he didn't know it was going to be five or six movies. Yeah, But, yeah. but you know, he had arrived. He had landed, right. He had suddenly had all the success and money and opportunities and so forth. And so that was kind of the era when that was kind of happening yeah. more and more. I never got a piece of that success. <laughs> a few people did. Uh, but but I definitely got opportunities because it was, you know, they're, they're – there was that kind of action going on
0: yeah so. which is so funny to think back to that idea of um lethal weapon being an original idea you know you think about what has happened since then with that whole kind of premise oh completely and and I die mean,
1: hard too you know oh yeah because because die hard of course um came out of that era also right that was based on a book um, but it was Joel Silver, the same producer, very much of the tone of Lethal Weapon, yeah, wise cracking action hero and all that. And um, what was funny was after Die Hard came out, there was this—I'm sure you remember this—like string of oh, it's Die Hard. You know, you'd start to read in the trades or wherever that somebody had sold the spec that was the next Die Hard, and it was right. Die Hard on a boat, yeah, you know, Die Hard on a plane, yeah, Die Hard on a bus, which yeah. speed and all. And eventually, it circled back around to, you'd read, oh, it's Die Hard in an office building. You know? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Wait a second. That is Die Hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, a- a- anyway, but that's that part hasn't changed, I guess, in Hollywood. There's constantly chasing the, the last success.
0: Right. Which brings back so many fantastic sequels. Right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No, that's... it's Or reboots.
1: Yeah. There weren't much in the way... When, when I was starting out, there were not the reboot idea hadn't really mm-hmm. become part of the business plans of these of the studios but now now it you know like spider-man i guess sony was the really the biggest offender. Mm-hmm. sony broke broke down all the uh, i guess social contracts about when when is a passable amount of time before you Resuscitate something. When yeah. They just roll from one Spider Man origin or origin movie to the next Spider Man origin movie. It just,
0: it's terrible. Which was great about Hulk, which I never watched any of those Hulk movies, but it was so funny because it had, I mean, you had what, three Hulks within a maybe six-year period or something yeah, like that.
1: Yeah, They never quite found the right take on that, you yeah. know? And that 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 was funny, too, because, you know, when Iron Man came along, I don't know if Hulk was before Iron Man or after, but they were, you know, they were starting to, these comic book movies were starting to really get traction mm-hmm. uh, among the boardrooms in Hollywood, not, not among fans. They've always been popular among fans. Right. Uh, so they put Ang, Ang Lee on the first that first big budget hulk mm-hmm. hulk movie i i guess there must have been someone who there must have been some big director who who did it first who made like a superhero movie
0: and mm-hmm. and, and, and why and, they decided to put ang lee right, on it yeah right. that was always so odd right.
1: but that's like you know that look that's an aspect of hollywood that always i always scratch my head because yeah. At the studio level, there's there's kind of classism, certainly at the highest levels. And kind of the, the funny story that I always think of is going just going back now 10 or 15 years when Hannibal came out. Mm-hmm. The, um, the the film, it was the Ridley Scott Hannibal.
0: Yeah. The third. Is that right? uh,
1: second or? Yeah, I'm not sure. second there or
0: there was Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs 2 and then Hannibal, which was. Yeah, I don't know. With Ed Norton. No, that was that was not the one
1: with Ed Norton. This is the one This was Silence of the Lambs 2. This was okay. This was the one where uh where um they replaced Jodie Foster. Right. And Ray Liotta was in it. But Okay, yeah. So, um anyway, so the movie comes out and it and it's a success and at the same time Universal was in a in, in a very public nasty kind of uh public relations nightmare with um uh the guy, the, what's his name? Zombie. Um, Rob, Zombie. Oh, Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie. Yeah. Rob Zombie had made a movie for them too, coincidentally at the same time, like House of a Thousand Corpses or uh-huh. something like that. Yeah. And Universal dumped the movie. And Rob Zombie made it a very public squabble uh-huh. because Universal, you know, was they paid to make the movie, but they weren't going to release the movie and they were going to sell it and dump it and all this stuff is a big, big mess. Right. And so Hannibal came out around that same time, also a Universal film. And some smart... Journalists, probably for Variety or somebody, interviewed the head of Universal and said, "Well, on the one hand, you're 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 dumping House of a Thousand Corpses because you say it's offensive mm-hmm. and and disgusting, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, you're releasing Hannibal, in which in which you know there's a scene where a guy has his he- top of his head cut off, yeah, and his brains served to him, yeah, and, and whoever executive was I forget who it was says something like." Well, you can't compare the two. One has Sir Anthony Hopkins. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so that, you know, there is that level of, we, we you know, we'll make a superhero movie, but it has to be an Ang Lee superhero movie. Right.
0: We've classed it up. Right.
1: We've classed it up. Yeah. We've classed it up. And there's that aspect of it throughout Hollywood. I mean, there's a million stories. Oh, yeah. Like that.
0: I'm sure. So, bringing back, you are um working as a writer uh Ooh. and going through the struggles of Hollywood and um, navigating all of that, what then brought you and your wife together? Uh, that's a <laughs>
1: that's a fun question too. Uh, when I was teaching at UCLA, I taught, I was asked, one of the things the department does is they bring back alumni mm-hmm. um, from time to time and it kind of keeps the, I guess they feel that it keeps, one of the things the students like are people who are working and it makes them feel like there's some accessibility to the Mm -hmm. industry and something current about the industry. So, uh, so I was teaching at UCLA and, uh, as it happened, my future wife was one of my students. Mm. However, there was no, there was nothing going on. If you had told me at the time she was, if you had told me uh, quite a look, she was living with someone and quite apart from that, uh, I was not on her radar certainly. And she was not on mine. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until, uh a few years later, we had kept you know we kept in touch, and of course she was a writer, and there was you know we would cross paths industry wise mm-hmm. from time to time and it you know a few years later it just i don't know just kind of happened it just sort of started to happen um I was no longer teaching there, she was no longer a student there, so I felt
0: not quite as sleazy as it sounds. There was no university tomfoolery no. that they, anybody should be looking into. No,
1: and and to be honest with you, I was scared to death. They 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 when I started teaching there, they gave us a uh, a uh, like a briefing on sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. So uh, they succeeded in terrifying me. <laughs> not not that I was ever inclined particularly to exploit that relationship, yeah. uh, but I was surprised after I started teaching there. Um, to learn that, you know, I guess that's kind of a thing. I, I, they are fairly naive, but um, friends of mine, like, I would, you know, friends of mine, particularly women, would say, "Oh, you're teaching at UCLA. Have you started teaching sleeping with your students yet?" Oh and I'm God. like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Yeah, yeah. So apparently, it's like a rite of passage, I guess, huh? for some some people, but uh, not not me. Not that was not my thing. That's good.
0: So you you two have been married for 15 years. Yeah. And your oldest is 13, thirteen. Yeah. So you guys dove in semi quickly. Yes, we had a child within a year of being married. Which you were at the time doing math. You're forty. 40. I was. Uh, I was.
1: For, uh, let me see.
0: Got married.
1: I was forty when I got married.
0: Okay. So you're forty-two when I was. 41 yeah
1: still 41 right when when the don't first, don't jump ahead I when the first still one i was still 41 i need all that time <laughs> yeah, get, uh when it. the first one came along and, okay and then uh the second one came along uh 22 months later so my wife got that done my wife felt that she had she had been told or she imagined that she had a geriatric womb or something like that mm-hmm. and uh she was determined that we would get get the children uh taken care of uh before any more time okay by. we were both um we were both sort of uh uh you know i mean i was 40 i wasn't like my dad got married at 24 or yeah something like that so yeah. uh, i was not a young super young guy right um when i got married and but we definitely knew we wanted children
0: yeah so you kind of knew going in if we're gonna have kids yeah. we're gonna be doing it pretty quickly yeah. Yeah. it was all part of
1: the all part of the plan. Yeah. Yep.
0: So you are then uh, working still at, at at that point when you are let's say first year of your firstborn, mm-hmm. where are you workwise?
1: Very busy at okay. that at that time. And you know, I, I will say I know we talked a long time about the business, but uh, before, rather than parenthood, but they're very, you know for me it was a very they were very much entwined. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not. You know, I was a poor, struggling writer for my—I didn't make a dime in my 20s mm-hmm. as a writer. And I really didn't have any kind of financial—not um, not well off by any means, but I didn't have any financial security until my mid-30s. Mm-hmm. So that had a huge impact on how I perceived my fitness to be a parent. And, right. You know, and that had a huge impact on— dating and and all that because i just did not feel like i was ready i didn't yeah. have the the me literally didn't have the means to support a family and wasn't sure i ever would mm-hmm. so i you know took that very seriously i know yeah. I, I, I for whatever reason i'm not saying it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do but i took that very seriously mm-hmm. and, and it had a big impact on sort of how i how i dealt with my social life so anyway um i was lucky enough to meet my wife at the right time mm-hmm. and we were lucky enough to Keep it together, uh, and until um, till I tricked her into marrying me, and then um, <laughs> I'm I'm right there with you. On that too. <laughs> and the and the kids came along too, sort of right on right on time. So. Yeah.
0: So, do you think your financial desire or the the not really the crutch, but the speed bump of it um, towards making that move was that from your upbringing at all, from seeing what your maybe not your parents because your dad was locked in when you were pretty young. Yeah.
1: My my parents were, you know, good with their money and mm-hmm. and pretty responsible. Um I I just think I had for whatever reason and again, I'm not, this is not by any means meant to be a uh, self-aggrandizing statement. It just I had a real hyper responsibility mm-hmm. to my to to myself and at my own expense ultimately because I think there's a lot of things in life that I just should have said, like they say in that movie, sometimes you just got to say, fuck it. And um, right. I never really said that. <laughs> yeah, 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 Uh Rarely in any case. Um, and so I think that was part of it, you know? And mm-hmm. I think the other part of it was I was very, not that we need to get into my psychology too much, but I was oh, very- we're going har- there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was very hard on myself about that. I mean, I really felt even from my early 20s, I should be able to take care of myself. I should be able to make a living at this. Mm-hmm. Why am I not? Able to do that, and so I was definitely very, a very up uptight, frustrated about that mm-hmm. part of my life, and I think that fed into. it. I was very hard on myself mm-hmm. about allowing myself to have any kind of, uh, you know, just fr- frivolity, I guess, yeah, or, yeah. or any kind of just lightness, and well, i pretty serious about stuff, and that that really infected other aspects of my life.
0: So in those 20s, then, when you are not getting financial gain from being a writer, and you, I assume, are living doing the apartment life in LA, yeah, basically, yeah, 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 and struggling. I mean, are you in kind of a in that cliched struggling writer's cycle, pretty much? And yeah, yeah, it, I lived in a,
1: I was lucky to get a rent-controlled apartment in Santa Monica, very lucky. Um, and uh, it was this pre-war stucco little cube over by santa monica college Mm -hmm. um small little rooms it was a depression era place it was nice enough i mean it was hardwood floors and you know stucco everything it was a it was like a pillbox. yeah um and in fact when the earthquake came in 94 the two places on the other side of my building which were built in the 60s they both had major damage my Mm -hmm. place didn't even get a crack but um, anyway, but yeah, it was like you know, it was like a bunker. I used to describe it as a bunker, and mm-hmm. I would go in there and just shut the door and lock myself in, and and uh, no one got in, you know, yeah, <laughs> on, on any on any capacity. Um, so yeah, definitely, I was I was kind of just keeping my nose to the grindstone, and it was all or nothing kind of mm-hmm. all, all, all or nothing.
0: And most of your buddies were also writers at that time that you were hanging out with out here or yeah yeah
1: yeah most of them were And my writing partner um who i wasn't well i guess i was partners with him by the early 90s we were working together but he worked on his own stuff and he had a very nice flourishing career quite without my involvement mm-hmm. so he was pretty busy even aside from what we were doing um but we got busy together as partners i want to say around 1994 Somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, so by the time my oldest came along, we were we were really up to our necks in it. Mm-hmm. And then 2002, we had had a couple movies made by then, and that, you know, keeps you somewhat viable, keeps you somewhat in demand. Yeah, um, gets
0: your name out there. And... Yeah, it provides more opportunities. Certainly,
1: yeah. you're on you're kind of uh, hot.
0: Right. So in this business, then, um, which is kind of a weird mix between being sort of self-employed but also employed by the man Mm -hmm. because you are in effect i assume kind of in the beginning doing something on your own to get it sold and then you have if and when that takes place you have their pressures that are on you and so now you become kind of to some extent their marionette um, to get their <laughs> yes. deadlines. I mean, That's because right. you're not really working on deadlines when you're writing a spec or, or whatever. Um, you're just holding up and hammering away on your own time and you could take five years to write a movie you're, or you're five describe,
1: weeks. You're describing my 20s completely. <laughs> I, I, you know, when I got out of school, um, you know, the great thing about school, probably any school, but certainly UCLA, was you, know, you, had, you had deadlines. You mm-hmm. had to turn your script in. It was homework. Uh, and when I got out of school, I, I felt, again, I put a lot of pressure on myself and mm-hmm. I should be able to manage my own deadlines. Well, you know, it's 30 years later and I still I don't have the same mm-hmm. level of time management that mm-hmm. I should. So, um, so, yeah, it took a couple of years to really get something viable out in the marketplace to work for me. And, look, like, there's a lot of other aspects to it also, which is I didn't have any understanding or appreciation of that. I was also becoming a business person. Yeah. You know, that there was that aspect to it. People would say, oh, well, you know, you need relationships too, to make it in this business. And I was like, eh, I
0: don't yeah. want,
1: I don't need those. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. um, so there, so there was a little big learning curve like there is for everyone, mm-hmm. regardless of their profession. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, it, it, it took a lot, a lot of time. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, to, to make the smallest amount. And there were, you know, and again, being a writer, there's certain psychological and emotional aspects to that craft mm-hmm. and that job that that maybe don't come along with every other job that I've struggled with. Probably like everybody else, yeah. Where you go, you can go through weeks and months when you're extremely productive and and on and focused and sharp, and then for no reason at all, you can go through the same period of time and just do nothing, right? Um, and, and that's a real mystery. It's a real mysterious aspect of of what we do.
0: Yeah. So when you're Doing that with a newborn, mm-hmm. um, knowing at that point that you're going to want to have a second very shortly thereafter, or no? Uh, we, I don't remember. Well, I don't remember much at all. But
1: I don't remember that being a a pressing issue. Yeah. Uh, um. When first when the first one, I mean, when the first one came along, we were both my wife and I were like completely hysterical. Mm-hmm. You know, we were like a cliche of the hysterical parents. Ah, uh, to the po- overprotective and, yeah. and just protective. I mean, we had to be some sometimes for a lot of reasons, right? Um, you know, our, our oldest. Uh, you know, it. She had some. My wife had some issues toward the end in mm-hmm. terms of her uterus, and apparently, we became we came you know really close to disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, it all worked out, thank God, in the in the end. But but there was a lot of emotional tumult about around all that, as you might guess. And, yeah, and um. And it's, you know, it's traumatizing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you know? I mean, it gets. I mean, it gets to you. It's only so. You know, I've lived a very sheltered life. Yeah. Um. Even with my my own ups and downs, business wise or personally, at least that's just me. Right. But now, of course, you know, there's you have the responsibility. There's that word again. Um, for someone who can't take care of themselves at all. And, yeah. And uh, I learned, even though I went through all the parenting classes and I was totally into it, um having a kid I was really excited etc but even when the baby was born um, I had this conversation with the nurse which was even with after all the classes and the books and everything I was in the hospital and the newborn or baby was Rowan was born and um, I said okay so how often does she have to eat And and the nurse said well every three hours and I said no I get that I get that but starting when and ending when during the day and she said every three hours from went, now yeah i said yeah. i said you don't understand what i'm saying <laughs> what time like what time does it do we like stop and then start again in the morning she's like every three hours <laughs> and 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 that's how ignorant i was even though i was into it right right but of course times have sort of changed with parents oh, yeah. certainly since when my and I, I will bore you with one anecdote that my mom used to tell which is When my mom was giving birth to my sister, Mm -hmm. just like 1962, Mm -hmm. there was this ruckus, she remembers, in the maternity ward because there was another woman giving birth, Mm -hmm. and that woman's husband wanted to be in the delivery room when his child was being born. Right. And the nurses and the doctors were pushing back at him, threatening to call the police and have him taken off the premises. Yeah. And then flash forward 40 years. Oh, yeah. My mother is now working as a volunteer in, in the hospital in Santa Barbara, and the nurses, there was like a guy there who didn't want to be uh-huh. in the delivery room when his child was born, and the nurses there were it just excoriating. I'm out. sure. Uh, so that's how much it's changed. Oh, know, yeah. The perception of childhood and childbirth and what's appropriate and right. And, and right so.
0: Yeah. So you are then – as she is here and home and in her first few months, and I'm assuming there was some work that you were doing or, or did you basically like, did you both kind of shut down and.
1: Well, um, yeah, we were, my partner, I was working with a part, I still work with a partner Mm -hmm. and we were, we were pretty busy at that time. We had deadlines and obligations. Um, and I do remember going to him and saying, okay, the babies, Shannon had to go on bed rest. Mm -hmm unexpectedly unexpectedly for like the last week or so mm-hmm. and so i remember going in when i when she called me and said i've been to the doctor and i have to go to go to bed mm-hmm. i walked into my partner's room and said i have to go home and i won't be back for a month and as much as he understood yeah <laughs> you know he was not I can't say he was
0: pleased sure. with that
1: news. Yeah, um, I mean, because it it had impact on the way we worked. I yeah, never had to, you know. Yeah. Um, and it it definitely had a, uh, a a massive impact on on our partner, not our partnership. Well, yeah, I mean, on our work life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which continues to this day. Right. Because prior to that, you know, I was there every day. Yeah, we were yeah. There working together every day. There were really very few. Outside impediments to to our time, yeah. Again, managing our time and and being able to put time, you know, if it was a Saturday or a Sunday or at night or just didn't holiday. I mean, we worked. We loved holidays because the phone wouldn't ring, right? So we worked. We were always working on long weekends, on yeah. Fourth of July, or yeah. New Year's Eve, and. You know,
0: and he doesn't have a family, so well, or he does, does he?
1: He does. My partner's gay, okay, and but he did have. Um, he he was the father. He is the father of two girls. They're kind of in their twenties now, okay. Uh, but the moms were, you know, the friends of his. But they were, you know, they lived in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And it was something that they had all, you know, worked out together mm-hmm. as a option for family life. Um, but he was not, in, by no means, in charge of their day-to-day or anything right like right yeah
0: so it's a very different understanding yeah place for him yeah
1: i mean he didn't have the he, right he didn't have the daily domestic demands of, right of, of of having a newborn in the house yeah yeah What i did and he didn't you know he, he's a lot calmer than me and he did so he didn't have the same response to the hysteria that my wife and i mm-hmm. had at having a new one and, and in fact and you have two so you probably understand but you know, after we had the second one, we were like, why the hell were we so freaked out about the first yeah. stretched thin by the yeah. first because yeah. having two is so much harder. They say it's easier, but it's not. No, especially when they're close together in age. And it's like this little lump just ran my, you know, enough two adults around. To right. For her care. Yeah. You know, just ceaselessly. Yeah. So I can't say we we, you know. She's, she thrived, she mm-hmm. survived, uh, she's doing fine, yeah. but I can't say we handled it uh, in the most effective and efficient and uh, savvy, savvy manner yeah. the first couple of years, for sure.
0: So do you feel like you have, I mean, if you have this, let's say a tight, uh, spun group of the two of you over mm-hmm. your first, and then you loosened up, do you feel that you have loosened up even further over the course of these now 10, 11 years? Or do you feel that you've, you kind of go back and forth with it or? Oh, I think we've loosened up and, yeah. and you know, as they've
1: become, uh, you know, I, Shannon and I, uh we were driving away. We were we, with our first one mm-hmm. with Rowan and we actually stayed, we actually paid, Uh, you know our insurance wouldn't cover it understandably we were like we want to stay in the hospital longer (laughs) yeah um and for various reasons shannon had a tough delivery and there was all there were issues certainly but uh but we drove again because of our hyper responsibility because shannon's just as hyper responsible as Mm -hmm. i am uh we literally drove from the hospital to the pediatrician Mm. uh without stopping at home (laughs) with our baby but i remember sitting in the car with Shannon and the newborn, she's four days old, three mm-hmm. days old and, and driving away from St. John's hospital in Santa Monica. And both of us looking at each other and saying, they're really letting us take this baby. Yeah, home. Yeah. <laughs> like they no, shown us? like no one's stopping us yeah. from, from taking this infant. <laughs> yeah. Are they out of their minds? I mean, we, and I remember driving away, like what the hell do we do now? Yeah. I mean, and again, we were prepared. Right. I mean, we, House Quote was unquote. ready. Yeah. And you know, we, we were again those those parents, West Side LA parents. I mean, yeah. the whole place was child proofed and yeah. we had the crib and the bumper and, I mean we had everything waiting for this life to come in and we still didn't had no idea what we were doing. Right. So uh anyway, so um but yeah, we've loosened up. I mean we're very lucky. The kids
0: are Fantastic.
1: Yeah, they're healthy, they're 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 you know, they're have their own World's going on. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, the only thing that we struggle with is maybe being around too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of feel like we're, you know, the house is getting smaller by the day as they Mm -hmm. get bigger. And they need less and less. And like most parents, at least speaking for myself, I'm about a year or two behind their actual development. Mm -hmm. So I still think, you know, they need me to make them corn dogs when, you know, they really don't right right and, right
0: um, uh, so
1: i struggle with stuff like that yeah. but
0: and how do you feel do you if any do you see parallels between your childhood and theirs and the way that your parents were with you and how you are with them or um well i have to say probably very much of the current
1: demographic social uh zeitgeist i mean uh, i was in montclair where i was raised you'd go out again baby boom era um dads tended to work moms tended to stay home right uh, lots of kids um station wagons and dogs and yeah. all that kind of stuff and and you know you you got up in the morning as a kid in the summer or you know on a saturday and you at five or six years old went out the back door and you didn't come home until 7 o'clock yeah, at night. Yeah, yeah. And you, no one was looking for you. you right. Know? No one was worried about you particularly. Uh, no one said stay out of the street, you know, even. Yeah. I mean, like, you kind of just – you'd say to the older kids, oh, look out for your brother, you know, or your right. sister or whatever. But that was kind of it. And you were climbing over fences and, and – um you know, crawling lighting under things on fire. Yeah. Lighting. Th- yeah. yeah, no, exactly. <clears throat> all of that. And, and so that does not happen here. That, that might happen. That does not happen with them. I mean, right. um you know, their, their upbringing was all like, you know, playdates and, and mm-hmm. it's all very structured and you always knew where they were. And yeah, um, there, there was no, my, my parents, we lived uh our backyards. We lived live literally next door to uh this other family, but our backyards, backed right into them yeah and so my parent and they had seven kids all our same ages Mm -hmm. you know all the spread was exactly the same and so um they my parents put a gate in Mm -hmm. because we were always climbing over the fence and so they just put a gate in between the two yards and that i think that gate still might be there i mean you just get up and ran out the back and you never you cut through backyards there weren't fences like here there weren't walls right and you would just you knew all the shortcuts yeah and you, you everybody
0: was attached and
1: yeah and it was like an indian you know indian path through the back all the backyards i mean you would just you just knew how to get to anywhere you needed to go in your neighborhood at large cutting through behind garages and all that kind of stuff and right came a whole that was your land yeah you know
0: so do you <clears throat> see stuff of your dad in you like when you are doing anything parental whether it be lecturing disciplining any kind of that thing do you ever have that thing that goes off in your back in the back of your head and says i'm i was just my dad right then or (laughs) anything like that Or, or do you feel like you are separated from yeah. who he was as a dad
1: i i'm i'm my dad again different era yeah. my dad was rarely called on to discipline at least me my my brother my my brother is three years older than me
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um you know we're very close now but but growing up he was really unhappy that he had siblings he mm-hmm. was like the kid he very precocious super smart mm-hmm. um but he was very disappointed that he was not an only child <sighs> and um and so that kind of rolled downhill and he he had a tough time growing yeah. up. I mean he just he just did and and uh so he was the one getting into trouble bullying like me or my sisters and so my father had to kind of my mother gave up trying to discipline my brother and my so my dad had to step in but mm-hmm. beyond that you know I didn't really make trouble you know typical second child flew under the radar. Yeah you know? yeah. Um, so I, I, didn't really require that, that kind of thing. So it kind of left me, I didn't really know what to do, especially with two girls. Right. But they're, you know, rarely have to bring the hammer down yeah. at this, this point. You know, you've, you've been
0: lucky. Well, they're not Knock teenagers yet. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I see it with my oldest right now, I mean, she's, she's going to be 13, uh, going to be 14 in a couple of months and she's a great kid. Um, but I, I see her starting to get restless and wanting more autonomy and um and by that i mean just even inside our relationship inside mm-hmm. our house she doesn't want me you know she's starting to kind of push back a little bit not not in terms of bad behavior or anything like that mm-hmm. but she just wants to create her own space as mm-hmm. a human being you know and i think i benefit from a lot of that kind of Psycho- pop psychology, you know, which is understanding. Oh well, you know, she's acting out. You know, right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, uh, she's trying to create her own identity. You know, yeah. and all that stuff. And a, a lot of that stuff is valuable. A lot of that stuff makes sense. And if you don't take it personally, you know, um, it's it helps. Yeah, to to kind of just go with the flow a little bit.
0: Yeah, and they are now in that age of. I mean, they both are texting and yes whatever pretty much yes
1: they are they are up to their necks in the in the technology revolution the oldest one i don't worry about so much i think she she plays piano in her room Mm -hmm. she draws she colors she has a lot of things that keep her occupied Mm -hmm. just this last since christmas just this last christmas a Mm -hmm. few weeks a couple months ago the youngest got an ipad Mm -hmm. and she I think she's struggling. She doesn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll put so this way: we're struggling with her love of the iPad. Because uh-huh. She she is spending a lot of time staring at that thing. Uh-huh. And even last night, for the first time, I woke up at two in the morning. I saw her light was on, and she was in there looking at either her phone or her iPad. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, daddy! No, I had a nightmare. I'm like earn it off yeah so there might be a bit of a reckoning coming in terms of time mm-hmm. of time spent
0: and where they are where the devices are kept at night yes exactly yeah yeah, yeah. exactly
1: they might have to lock them we might put them in a lockbox,
0: yeah or
1: something like that and yeah i don't you know we're, we're not that tough on them if if they're doing other things mm-hmm. this is it's a balance all about trying to find the right balance right know? and i think uh, parenting ends up being one of those things that's an expression of both your best and your most challenged traits right um and it has to do a lot with what's going on with the
0: kids, too, you know. Right, um, and your spouse, and your spouse, you're and, bringing and, a whole other element in, yeah,
1: and religion, and you know, right, all right. these values that that figure into it. We tend to be more, um, uh, what would the word be, secular, I guess, in
0: our values. Yeah, you know, we don't, we not, we don't really practice a religion particularly. Right, you're not going anywhere on Sunday morning.
1: No, um, nope. and we're not bringing sort of like you have to do this because. That's what we believe. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're, we're a little bit more open-minded about, you know, they have certain values that they're required. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to be cruel to people. They're not allowed to cheat, lie, or steal. Uh, they're not allowed to do any of that stuff. Right. That's not the values we espouse, and that's not the values we live. Right. Um, uh, but we don't kind of bring down that hammer and say, you know, you have to abide by these rules because they were
0: handed to us. From, right, right, from above. Uh, from or, above, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah all right thanks again for listening to this episode and just so you know if you did not get enough of me and michael there is a fork in the road episode that will be available as well a fork in the road is something that sprouts off of my normal uh, daddy unscripted podcast episode with one of my guests Uh, I don't think all guests will actually have a fork in the road, but Michael and I absolutely did. And ours is basically us just talking about uh, movies and TV shows as well. So if you want to hear somebody within the industry and then myself, who's basically just a cinephile, um, then you can go to that fork in the road episode. But I wanted to close this one out as well and thank Michael for being on and thank you for listening. Uh, You can find Daddy Unscripted online at daddyunscripted.com. You can find us under the same name on Facebook and even on Twitter. And then uh, if you want to listen to us on your Android device, you can use Stitcher. Uh, On your iPhone, you can use your podcast app. And I'd love for you guys to um, find the podcast on iTunes and uh, leave us a little review, a rating and subscribe. All of those things really help the podcast out and help me be able to get a little bit more um, listeners that are not people just that I know, which is super helpful. And then we can potentially get some uh, great guests continuing to come in and sit on the other side of the mic from me which is uh, a benefit for the podcast in general but also for you guys and if you have anybody that you want to suggest to me you can do it through any of those formats or you can drop me an email on daddyunscripted at gmail.com so thanks a lot for listening hope you uh, tune into that Fork in the Road episode because it is very fun